You know, I like you guys are the talent. You show up, you lay down your tracks, and you're out. And you don't have to care about the quality. You don't have to care about the drop off. You don't have to alter any of it. The episode drops, and you're just like, oh, whatever. Meanwhile, that's I'm how much we trust you. You're welcome. Working around the clock to make this happen. And we appreciate it. I don't hear Trisha appreciating it. I don't have time for you. So rude. <laughs> I don't have time for so, you. So, so rude. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hello. Hi, guys. How's it going? It's going great. San Francisco, let's yeah. hear. Jason cannot wait. I've been Trisha, waiting to ask. Trisha and I are fresh off of our weekend trip to San Francisco. Uh, we had a great time. We would have loved it. It was great, Trisha. I mean, right? It was great. We had a great time. Yeah, it was really good. Um, it was we. It actually rained for a good portion of one of the days, but we just we just moved from restaurant to restaurant. You know, one <laughs> restaurant we had a meal, another restaurant we just had um, drinks and appetizers, and then another restaurant we had a fantastic, fantastic dinner. We had our own personal. Uh, chauffeur taking us around the city practically, you know, like a personal tour guide. It, yeah. um, it was wonderful. <laughs> it was um, Chris's friend. Um, and he was like, I need to take you to this place to eat and this place. And every place he took us to was just fantastic. It was great. He is definitely one of those guys who's like, gotta come here. You gotta try this. And so you go. And before we can even like order our water, he's like, can we have for the whole table like this thing? <laughs> And I'm like, oh, it's cool, but like, did you check in with us if anyone likes that stuff or like alert? Whatever. No, I. But it I, worked out really well. Like he ordered a margarita that was to die for a picture of it. So we were like, yes, please. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> two pictures here, please. I was like, two pictures. <laughs> it was so cool. Um, so it was just really nice. It was like one of those wonderful moments where you're just so happy to be with the company you're in. And even though it was rainy, we just moved from you know it was wonderful. I loved it. Oh, and then two pictures yeah. of margaritas. Like who? Can, how can you go wrong? Like, I know. You're, you're gonna have a good time. We certainly did. <laughs> <laughs> so it was. Just, I was just. I love being. You know. I just love visiting with people. Hung out. Ate too much. Drank too much. Um, and but then also we went to an art um, art gallery in um, Stanford. Stanford has a lovely art gallery. The oh, campus, beautiful campus, mm-hmm. beautiful campus, and they have a they have all these Rodin structures, and it was gorgeous. They had um, the Gates of Hell door mm-hmm. that Rodin yeah. did, and had like inspired all of his all of his um, structures, and I guess. He just used pieces of it and just kept replicating those pieces. But it was wonderful. It was a wonderful day. It promised to rain. So we're like, let's go find a museum. And then it didn't rain. And so we went, walked, wandered around in like a garden and then hung out in the museum all day. It was great. You know, I, I have to say, people with dogs. <laughs> That's where you take this? <laughs> no, because you had to rush home because there was a dog. If you think about it, we were out for a good ten hours, but that was that's the limit. You know what I mean? But that's, that's the thing. Limit. Like with, Chris with, wants no limits. Why should I, there be I, a limit I, because I, of a damn dog? Let me tell you something. I was dating this guy a long time ago, and great guy at the time. Whatever, great guy at the time. And like 
he had this big old dog at home, like one of those big dogs that should not be in a New York City apartment. Yeah, those are hard. And so we'd like be like out and having a great time. Like, you know, we'd be out dancing or drinking or something. And I'd be like, hey, why don't you just come back to my house or whatever? And he's like, no, can't. I have the dog. And it's like over time, like it was just we had about six hours to do anything before someone had to get back to that dog. And I resented him and I resented the dog after a while. It was Thank God he didn't have a child. My Lord. No, kids are different because you can drop them off with somebody. Where? <laughs> Nobody wants your nasty dog. That's the difference. Wait, so are we did randomly it... dropping kids off and not spending the night with their children? No, that's Jason. not happening. I will refuse to comment on that. But, but Chris, I want to know, did it get to the point where you said, you're going to have to choose right now, your dog or me? No, I didn't. It's just after a while, I was like, listen, I didn't want to be dating this guy and his dog. You have so many parameters. I don't with him. You know what? Dog. That's awesome. Nope. That you're making it sound very Seinfeldian. I'm being really. It's a little Seinfeldian. Sounds. It does sound very. I don't think we're making it sound. It is Seinfeldian. (laughs) Because you know what the reality is. How long do you have to be out? Six hours is a good chunk of time to be out in the world. If you meet someone at like two o'clock, right, and you're hanging out eight o'clock, it's like. You just finished dinner, and now you're like, oh, do you want to get a drink? Oh, do you want to go out somewhere? No, I got to go home and feed my goddamn dog. <laughs> I think we should have, like, a book called Chris First World Problems. <laughs> and it's like, like having to go to loved ones' houses for two holidays in the same season. It's like not being I mean, able to spend more than six hours out on the town because yeah. of a dog. Or some right. of the weddings in, in great tropical locations. Right. <laughs> No, it's like minor inconveniences. That's the name of the book. And you open it up and it's just like <laughs> tiny little d- indignities. <laughs> it's just too poor, much. Poor thing. I don't want to date guys with dogs. I don't want to get on a plane like twice within two weeks to go see family. And I don't want to go to vacation, uh, wedding vacations. I just don't. Sorry. That's who I am. You are, you are Linda Richmond. I feel like this is more and more. <laughs> You fit that character. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I just don't. You know, coffee talk, no big whoop. But Jason, nonetheless, you missed out, Jason. Yeah, what were you doing while we were off in San Francisco living our very best lives? I was, you know, having my work-a-day life, going to work, <laughs> coming home. How boring. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I, I will say, I don't want to ruin anything, but I, over the, you know, since we last recorded, I have encountered so many great media experiences. I'm like, I have so many things to choose from for my media recommendations. This never happens. It never does. Remember first season when you just were me- yeah. recommending your barber, yeah. a street sign on the, at the corner. I know. A broken coffee cup you ran over in your car. I know, but I've actually been, you know, reading and listening to podcasts and seeing good movies. It's been fascinating. Well, congratulations. I've actually had uh, also a lot of media experiences. Maybe it's spring. Maybe it's a good moment, yeah, for media. Something. Although, interestingly, we, you know, we allude, I alluded to this before we started recording. I have to join with a lot of my compatriots and say that the last two episodes of Game of Thrones, uh, I, I just was really unhappy with those. Did you sign the petition? No. Was there a petition? I didn't know that. Petition for what? 
Um, somebody wrote a petition to um, repeat the entire season. Okay. Everyone, everyone within the sound of my voice, listen up. Listen up. <laughs> listen up. Get a new hobby. Okay. <laughs> the actors are really offended by that, but I was like, eh. well, Kid Harrington had to go to rehab. <laughs> That's, not funny. That's not funny. Is that true? Kid Harrington's in rehab? Yeah, he's in rehab yeah. now. Oh, I didn't know that. Exhaustion. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing, and I, I won't talk more about it. Seven and a half seasons, every episode I thought was phenomenal. The penultimate episode, I thought, and I, th- I know some people will disagree, I thought it was well executed, but it, it, it really tested the suspension of disbelief. The last episode was like, you just spent eight seasons creating a certain world with certain rules, certain characters, and you just like defied all of it. Like it's, it was just like, so, you know, it reminded me of the last episode of Seinfeld, which I liked, but nobody else liked. It reminded me of that. The same way people spoke about that last episode of the Seinfeld series. That's how I felt. Or it's just like, this seems to just undermine everything else we just saw. But I'll stop talking about it. I, I find it. I find it frustrating when people cannot move on from an experience that they've had. It, it seems to me like everyone getting upset about the end of Game of Thrones and then having to, like petitions to redo the whole thing. It's sort of like like you being on a roller coaster and it ends. And when they're like, please exit to the right, you throw a hissy fit being like, but that was so much fun. What do you mean? What do you mean I have to get out now? That was so much fun. Yeah, it's over. Like, I, I don't know what else to say about that. I don't, I don't think I don't think that's quite what happens. I think I think Jason broke it down well. It's like. You know, you can't create rules of a universe and then betray those rules at the end because you've run out of storylines. I mean, it's like, that's the investment that people have made in your storytelling. What does can't mean in your sentence? What I mean is, listen, there are rules of storytelling. You know what? You say that in order for us to believe in, um, you've told us that people can't fly. And then in the final episode, some people are flying. You can't, you know what I mean? Like, they can't, that doesn't work. Well, no, but I, these, these sort of like general rules of the universe. The choice that they're making, what can you as the viewer do? <laughs> you you can sign viewer, a petition, apparently. You can balk at it and you could say it's lazy storytelling. You could say all those things. But listen, you've already given up the time. It's fine. No, but here's, here's, here's the difference. I think this is the kind of distinction you're making, Chris. And I'll use this opportunity to feel better about myself. Uh, and look down on other people as I, as I like to, which is, you know, the difference is I am still a hundred percent grateful for almost every episode of the series. And the fact that the last two episodes were disappointing does not ruin the experience for me. I do feel like there are certain people that are like, Oh, the, you know, this is all for naught. I mean, I, I may have mentioned this before. I'm reminded of, I read this great interview with Mark Hamill who was talking about how he was so annoyed that people when Phantom Menace came out said that it ruined their childhood because now they couldn't watch, you know, episodes four through six of Star Wars. It's like, that's absurd. Like those movies are still good, even if you didn't like the next one. You know, I, I just feel like experiences exist in time. I did not like the last two seasons of Dexter, that show on Showtime. I love that show. And then it just didn't end well. It sucked, but like I really enjoyed watching it while I watched it, and now that period of time is over. I, I'm not saying people can't be frustrated by the end of The Sopranos, the end of Seinfeld, the end of Dexter. Look, TV shows do not end well. They don't know how to write and how to close them, most of them. I mean, I think the petition thing is just where <laughs> – that just sets me off. 
Like, you I mean, think I'm right. We talked about critique last week, right? And like, I totally get critiquing me like, this is not good because yes, so many people are flying or whatever. You broke the rules of your own. But like to be like, mm, I want I want a do-over. <laughs> I mean, actually, I think it's a, I think it's like the ultimate compliment because what's in some ways what's happened is that you have so pulled those people into your world that it becomes an extension of themselves in some way. And so how you end it, how you close it out feels really like a personal attack right? That, there's no distinction between them and the characters and the world anymore. Boy. So you've done a good job. I mean, that's, I think that's partly what's happened with Game of Thrones, right? It's like yep. people have become so invested in that, that world. That's, that's starting to sound a little unhealthy. I, I agree. That's, I mean, I mean, I think it's unhealthy, but you don't like it, but that's what it is. You're you like, you're like you, you got these people hooked on cocaine and now they don't want to give it up. Like, congratulations. Yeah. But you know what? Actually, I, I, I saw a couple of articles and I, and I meant to read them because I actually had a feeling that what the articles were going to say was that you were always going to be upset because it's the ending that you're really upset about. It's actually not the intent, not what actually happened. It's the fact that you're losing a part of your life, a part of people, all of that stuff. That's really at the under, probably underlying reason why everyone is always to some degree upset about the ending of any show is that it's the loss of the show that you're really reacting to. Yeah. Uh, yeah although I, I will say I do, there are some shows like, so I also saw the last, last episode of Veep and well, I didn't, it didn't like, it wasn't like amazing. I thought it was, a, it was well done. And that show, I thought that was like well-rounded another, another HBO show boardwalk empire, which I really liked. I thought that ended well. Like, I think it can be done well, even when, you know, in both cases, I still kind of mourn the end, but I wasn't like, oh God, like you just pulled that out of nowhere. <laughs> I'll also say that, um, and then we'll move into topics, I promise. This is like an extension of what we were talking about in the last episode about critique. I will say that um, because of social media and everyone's access, not only to creators and stars, but also each other, I think, Trisha, to expand on what you're saying, I think it's partly the loss, but also I think it's partly there's a bit of conceit there that people think they could do better or like people feel like they've delved deeper. There was um, spoilers, 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 Avengers Endgame spoilers, 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 spoilers. Okay. You know, there was this whole thing about when in Endgame, when Captain America picks up Thor's hammer. And online, there was like this whole fan explanation for why he couldn't do it in the earlier movie, but he could do it now. And there was like this whole thing that was spun out, which was really quite beautiful and made sense given the context of the universe and the characters. And they asked the directors and writers if they had seen that. They're like, oh, yeah, we that's not what we came up with. We didn't think about it that deeply, but sounds good. And then (laughs) people were upset. Like, oh, what do you mean you didn't think? Like, but it's but it's genius. Like, that's obviously the answer. And it's like, um. (laughs) okay everyone it's cool that you want to participate but like you can make your own movie like this is the movie that we made i i i I feel like there's a lot of that especially when it comes to the comic book stuff where there is decades of lore that people have studied and they they want to pull the most the most esoteric pieces of data out to make what's happening now make sense and i used to be one of those people but i i never went to the nth degree i was always like listen these people are telling their stories I can like the story or not like the story, but I cannot like grab their hand and force them to write a new one or demand that they redo the entire thing. Cause I didn't like the way it ended, but 
whatever. Although I, I will say I have a problem with storytelling that is lazy. Sure. And, and ineffectual. Sure. And dismissive of sure. your, the lore you created. Do you know what I mean? It's like you, you know, you took these people on a ride and you told them what, what was possible within that universe. And then at the end, because you want to sort of do a fun thing, which you, is totally your right to do. You own those characters. Do whatever you want with it. Yeah. But I think sometimes that feels like a bit of an insult to me from the fan's perspective. It's like, play within the world you've created. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you're, right, turning about, yeah. you're turning about an internal consistency. And I completely yeah, agree. Sure. Like, yeah. I completely agree. But um, I think what I'm getting at is that I, I, okay, I'm going to take a second to say I cannot co-sign harder on what you're saying because that's when shows go off the rails for me is that when you forget the rules that you told me. I agree, agree completely. That's exactly you know, my problem. You told me and now you're just going back on it. But that's not what's going on here. It's just that no. the people who are writing have one way of writing the story. Yeah. And then you think you have a better way. <laughs> But you know what? This is why fan fiction is wonderful. Right. I was going to say. That is lovely about fan fiction is that they've given you a starter universe and then you fill it in. And I actually think, I mean, spoiler, sometimes the fan fiction is better. Honey. (laughs) In my experience of it, you know, because to some degree, the fans are like a slave to the rules, right? And so they go in and they play within the rules that have been shaped. And so the characters are bound in some ways. And so it's really kind of, it's interesting to watch it. You don't give yourself an out because it's just, oh, well, this would be just easier to write it. No, you know, sometimes the people who are actually participating in fan fiction are more bound by the rules of the universe than the writers who created it. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think that's where, that's why fan fiction's a thing, right? Yep. I mean, I think that's why people make fan fiction. That's one of the reasons, right? Because they're like, no, they're doing it all wrong. They don't <laughs> have the whole, they don't have the whole Captain America, Tony Stark, Bucky <laughs> Matrix correct. I'm going to <laughs> You know, I'm going to do it right. And you're like, you know, these aren't real people, right? Like these are literally (laughs) characters that the people in question create (laughs) on an ongoing basis. So they are actually telling you who they are. But go go nuts. Go nuts. I will tell you. And and, and if you go nuts, you can make a ton of money, Fifty Shades of Grey. That was fan fiction. I will tell you that the correctives for Endgame in the fan fiction universe, I enjoyed better. Thank you very much for your... Captain America, Bucky, fan fiction correctives, people who've written them. I love it, and I appreciated it. (laughs) It soothed my soul. (laughs) Great, and I'm glad that they have an outlet and that they're not demanding that Endgame be pulled out of theaters and redone. (laughs) I'm just glad they're out there doing their own thing so people like you can enjoy it. I'm down with that. Oh, Okay. Let's uh, let's move into topics. The topic that Jason has been desperate to discuss for weeks. Um, yeah. If you go back and listen, listener, in the last four or five episodes, Jason has brought this up not once, not twice, but three times. So to lead into this, in an episode of She's Gotta Have It, the Spike Lee Netflix thing that um, I recommended last season, but I'm I'm withdrawing that because (laughs) it was not good at the end. Talk about things that didn't end well. (laughs) In any case, uh, two of the characters are having a discussion about uh, actors. And one of the characters was saying, one of the characters in the show was saying how um, a lot of black British actors come over here and steal roles from African-Americans to which the other character said, well, yes, but black British people aren't, don't, aren't fucked up by um, a history of slavery and they don't have that weighing down on them. 
And the characters go back and forth. And then online, this whole thing erupted where people were arguing at that point. And this is very much a point that Jason uh, has been attempting to make on the podcast. So Jason, why don't you jump us into this and lay out your argument? And then me and Trisha will rip you to shreds. Oh, that sounds really inviting. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> no, I, 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 this is, I'm going to try to present this in a level-headed manner. There are a lot of African-Americans in this country, people whose ancestors were slaves in this country. You know, they obviously make up the majority of Black people in this country. And of course, African-Americans have had enormous cultural contributions, not only to this country, but to the world, in music, in film, etc. And I do find it striking that I think we're seeing more and more music and film that are consumed in this country and produced by American-based companies, where the people you know, making the music and the people in the films, in some cases, the people directing the films are black, but are not actually African-American. So there's Drake, who is an immigrant from Canada. There is, you know, folks like Cardi B, who, again, come from an immigrant background. Nicki Minaj would be another example. This is all on the music side. Of course, Rihanna. And then in the film side, and this is what I think the exchange you were just talking about, Chris, gets to, you know, we see certain actors getting a lot of roles in American films films who black actors from Britain, people from Nigeria, Issa Rae, not that she's from Nigeria, but her parents are. I am sure there are so many very talented, very effective African-American actors whose families, you know, whose ancestors were slaves here. And uh, so many, of course, rap artists and that kind of thing. And yet we're giving kind of more and more of our money to folks not from that background. And in the cases of actors, people who are playing African-Americans, but are not themselves African-American. It feels very problematic in the sense that, you know, from the time that Africans were first brought to America, their labor has been exploited. They have not been compensated for, you know, their work or compensated fairly as time has gone on. And we know that, you know, lots of people have profited off of the work, the labor, um, you know, the artistic production of African-Americans. And in many, most cases, these are white folks who've, who've benefited and exploited. And then, you know, we've had other waves of immigrants who have come in and continue to do well, sometimes on the backs of those folks. And now I think you see in these kind of uh, pop cultural areas that, we see another wave of folks. These people happen to be black, but they are black people from other countries that again are getting more of the roles or let's say a disproportionate number of the roles. You know, again, the majority of the black population in this country, uh, although there's tons of talent and they, lots of great things have been produced, they seem to get the short end of the stick. You know, that's, you know, it's interesting that Spike is the one that introduced this because I could have sworn that maybe a year ago, Spike was actually defending using British actors because he thought they were better trained. Oh, God. Is that a better argument to be making in this space? I mean, I don't know if it's a better argument, but it's it could be. It could realistically be in the sense that, like most immigrants who come from other spaces, some immigrants are the ones that have the capacity to leave and therefore... You know, if you if you look at if you if you look at immigrants who come from other countries, 
who leave the country as an engineer and come here and become a salesperson or, you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. there could be a room to be, there could be something to be said about immigrants who are better trained, who then come here and then have the capacity to attract people and do the work. You know, I've had, I think I've had a growing, I think I had a growing up around this issue because obviously I'm from, I'm from Jamaica. I'm not African-American in the traditional sense, in the sense that descendants of slaves from here were descendants of slaves, but from Caribbean slaves. Um, and so I, I really think about the, the immigrant experience when I was, when I was coming up and how we talked about African-Americans in our home as Jamaicans and what that was like and recognizing that we really are a very diverse group when you see the African diaspora. And so I used to be really impatient with this whole line of reasoning. I'm like, we're all black people here. That would be my first instinct. But I think as I've come to grow up and be more thoughtful about it, I can see parts of Jason's arguments. You know, I really believe that we have historically disenfranchised African-Americans here. And so sometimes when you come here, having had an experience from another country where maybe you had access to educational opportunities and you had access to things that give you a head start, and, and then you come here and you, you have opportunities that have only really, in, in some sense, materialized because of the efforts of African-Americans and the civil rights movement. And there are slots that are promised to African-Americans but they're not taken by African-Americans. They're taken by immigrants who come here and do, and are maybe in some sense better prepared because of wherever they came from. I do start to think about that. And I do, I do worry about that. And I do worry that we don't take that seriously. And so while I can immediate, you know, while I, while I don't like to go down this road, I think we have to go down this road and we have to talk about it, even though it makes me uncomfortable and it makes me have to confront the realities of different communities within the African diaspora. I think we have to really take that seriously. I have been struggling to have an opinion about this, honestly, because uh, what I want to do, what the thing I always want to do is pull back and be like, is this a problem that's beyond race, right? Are people upset that Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman are getting roles? Are yes, people- they are. They are okay. So, yeah. so that's the thing. So, like, I, I am. This... <laughs> <laughs> and others have been, and others it's... have been. Other other white people have talked about that too. So this is a Hollywood problem, which with, and I'm not saying that it's not specific or special when we talk about black diasporic people. I mean, that's a conversation. That is the conversation that I want to have. I don't want to blow it out. So we're not talking about race. It's just that I want to come from the direction that this seems to be an issue with Hollywood in general, is that we are importing these British and Australian actors, like spending money to make sure that their American dialect coaching is up to snuff instead of just hiring an American. I I would love to speak to a director or producer to know what that's about, if that's intentional. Um, when it comes to black people, I, d- I agree with what you're saying, Jason, like, especially I feel it when you say that, or, or Trisha and Jason, the mixture of what you're saying is that people from America, black people from America have created these particular art forms, which then immigrants come in and for lack of a better word, exploit 
um, continue to popularize and then profit off of it. And that feels wrong to me. But then the other part, speaking to what you said earlier, Tricia, is that even though growing up, my parents, who are also from Jamaica, raised me as a Jamaican, I also received messages about African-Americans. And I did not meet or befriend any African-Americans until I was in college. And even still, as Trisha can attest to, all the Black people I hung around with college ended up to be Jamaican descendant anyway. I was about to say, I, I don't know that I've ever heard you admit that you befriended African-Americans. There was one or two in college, but Trisha and I quickly <laughs> ditched them and just were friends with each other. <laughs> so while I am so aware that my culture is distinct from African-American people who grew up and whose parents grew up here, there's a part of me that says, like, we are all Black people shouldn't we be lifting each other up? Or am I being too naive about that? I think you are, because I think it's like, it's like when we talk about minorities, but when, but we don't admit that there's specific minorities that are disenfranchised actively. Minorities in minorities, you mean? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that, and the intersections, right? And so we can talk about, we can recognize African diaspora, but we can also recognize the most vulnerable members of it. And so I, I think we have to be really careful of that. Are African-Americans the most, I mean, in the context we're talking are. about, I guess. They yes, are. they are. Yes, they are. Okay. You know, and I mean, I think, and I think we, we get ourselves in trouble, I think, as, um, as, uh, as immigrant Blacks, because I think in some ways we are also part of the immigrant story. I think we can make distinctions about immigrants, right? We talk about that all the time. Like these, these are people who have the capacity to leave. Sometimes they may have more resources than others. You know, all of that thing. So there's like a special thing that you can actually say about immigrants that cuts across racial lines. And so when you look at successes in, in America and you look at successful doctors and all those kinds of things, you can see that quite a number of them are immigrants, Right. And that comes out of like whatever kind of distinctions you want to make about what makes immigrants unique. So I do think that we have to be really mindful about not sweeping aside real differences just because it makes us uncomfortable and just because we want to embrace diaspora, because we don't do that when we're talking about people of color. We're not quick to say, oh, yeah, all people of color are struggling in the same way. We make real clear distinctions about who's the most vulnerable. And we want to attack those problems, right? How does I mean, this problem get attacked then? I mean, I, and I want to take a moment out to say that we're talking about a very privileged class of people anyway. Um, and and, and what, I, what do you mean, which class? I mean, if we're, we're talking, we entered this conversation about actors and entertainment. Yeah. And, and who's getting opportunities. Um, and I, I want to recognize that we're talking about that, but I also want to take it down to like the common man, because I think it's what you're saying, Tricia, is that immigrants who show up are I don't want to say better suited, but they um they've had experiences that have already tested their tenacity to a degree that if you're born here, that perhaps you never had that opportunity. You know, I was listening to an immigrant story of um this Mexican who had walked to America and he walked nonstop for thirty days, and I was like, you know what? That I already know something about your character. And when he did arrive here, like I can guess what your work habits would be. You know, most Americans, if they stand in line longer than like 30 minutes, like it's going down. You know what I mean? There's something to that. But I don't know what the solution is to that. How do we, and not just about entertainment or movies or actors, because again, that's such a privileged class. Like I struggle to care. 
I struggle to care that Daniel Kalu is making like millions of dollars versus like some other top tier African American actor. Like, I get it philosophically, but it not practically. But if we bring it down to the other level, is there anything to be done about maintaining or opening up opportunities for African Americans and somehow limiting or titrating the opportunities for African diasporic people? I'm going to answer that by first going back to the mass culture industry, which is, I think the only way these things get addressed is if we become much more conscientious about how we spend our money. I mean, ultimately, this is why, like, I can't really fault Drake. Drake's doing his thing. The thing is, like, a ton of Americans, African-American, white American, et cetera, are buying his music and mm-hmm. and not using that money to buy other people's music. And again, there are plenty of other artists to choose from. And, you know, we're going to see movies with certain people in them. Now, obviously, that's the that's the easier part. I think what you're talking about, Chris, in terms of every level of the economy, we don't tend to be very well-informed consumers, right? Like we don't do our homework to look at like, where's the money ultimately going? Most of us don't do that. I don't typically do that. But, you know, in this society where money is such an enormous power source, that's really the way to do it is to try to make sure that we're sending our money in places that invest um, in equitable ways and give opportunity to folks who've been disenfranchised. Not an easy solution, but to me, that's ultimately, again, money is ultimately what what drives what happens in this country. So instead of buying a Drake CD, you'd buy one by an American. I don't want it to go down there. I mean, I think you could, right? Because you could say, you know, you could say, well, I don't know. I feel like that stuff sends us down a road where we're talking about buy Jap- don't buy Japanese cars, yeah. something weird like that. But I think what it's fundamentally about is that we don't want to invest in the people who are the most vulnerable to help them get up to step. So what you do is you skip to the person who's already had a couple of helping hands elsewhere. It's like what the way people think about um, certain types of schools, charter schools. People think that charter schools cream off the top, right? You get your choice of who you're choosing, right? And so you get to pick students whose parents are actively engaged or all the other things that you could think of that makes it an easy sell. And so what you've done is you've taken the ones who are maybe a step ahead and you don't have to do much labor and work, which is partially why I think these things happen. And then you don't do the labor to bring the ones who have been less well-resourced to up to the level. That's what's going on. You know, we all know that we have kids who are struggling and it's just easier to, to focus on the ones who have less problems. And I think that that's really what that's about. I don't think it comes down to, well, I want to make sure that I don't buy Drake's album or do I think we have to really just be sensitive to the fact that we, as an industry, you can focus and invest in growing talent. But instead of doing that, what you do is you go and you find talent that's already been prepared elsewhere and you put your money there. I, I, I hear what you're saying. I think, I mean, the reason I still go back to being conscientious about where you send your money is I don't know what mechanism forces the change you're saying, Tricia. Like what you're saying makes sense, but I don't know what actually, I, other you- than uh, other than, you know, some conscientious consumerism. Or some kind Ooh. of a boycott or something. I don't know no, what moves. No boycott, Jason. Guess what? I'll give you your favorite thing. What is Jason's favorite thing, Chris? 
vegetarianism? No, 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 no. <laughs> you know where you set aside a certain number? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Jason loves a quota. A well, quota. you know what? Canada does this. What they do with their entertainment is that X percent of music on the radio must be by Canadian artists. So it's all Avril Lavigne, Drake, Celine Dion all the time. And <laughs> Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, and at first, when I first heard that, I was like, that's silly. But then I was like, or is it? Because it gives the people of Canada, it, it gives them an opportunity to compete against like the American entertainment behemoth. And it made sense. So maybe it's something like that. Like maybe, and I don't know which body could do this returning to, if we return to talking about movies, I don't know what body could do this, but if we said, okay, well. Unions. Uh, yes. Unions. unions could be like, you know, no more than 15% of the cast can be foreign. See, I don't love that though. Well, I love that, but you know what? I don't mind it. You have to, you know, cause I, my friend, a friend and I have been talking about this and we've been talking about the fact that we're using soft language to deal with real problems. Oh. Deal with diversity. No, no, no. <laughs> Oh, I wish the audience could see Trisha's eye roll when she yeah, said the word like, diversity. No, that was wonderful. No. Let's just, you know what? Let's just call a spade a spade. We need more women on this sheet. On you know, we need more women here. And I don't mm. want you to tell me that the quality is going to go down or this is going to da 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 da. I'm going to ask you why then is the quality going to go down? Are you telling me that you have not properly supported women? So then let's get to doing that. Is that what you're saying? Or are you saying that women in some weird way are incapable of doing good labor? You know, so it's just like, I think we have to be really aggressive now, which I guess brings us back to affirmative action language. But I think we have to be super aggressive and say, no, we need 10% of women doing this, 20%, whatever the numbers are, whatever the quotas are, we have to be actively engaged in saying it. And I know that makes people uncomfortable, but I think at this point in time, if we don't make those hard asks, it's just not going to get done. It's just not. Wow. You got my vote. You just convinced me. It's not, I mean, so if we take it back to Jason's question, I think, listen, I think we have to be really proactive about supporting industries. And what we're talking about is an industry of actors and performers. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, it's funny because um, the, me- the, can- the, the Canadian example is really interesting because because of the American machinery, lots of other countries put in percentages and quotas because the American machinery is so powerful that it has to make sure that it doesn't get overwhelmed. Right. And for some reason it's a, it's an actual rational approach, but yet we never think about that internally as a culture. Like how do we make sure that we are making sure that people have roles? I mean, I think Ava DuVernay has figured out a way to like find women to direct and everybody's like, how did you find these women? Where were they hidden? You know what I mean? <laughs> and all of those kinds of They've things. They've been right here the all entire of... time. So I think while it makes us uncomfortable as a community of Black folks to admit that Black people are having different experiences and are differently challenged, I think we have to. It's not great, maybe, for us to sort of say it out loud, but I think we have to. We have to admit it. All right. Jason. I'm going to give you the very last word on this. This is a conversation you've been wanting to have on this podcast for a while. What did you take away? I got a lot of clarity because I have to say, I mean, often when I would bring it up, it was somewhat jokingly 
And it was like, oh, you know, we need like a black Trump who talks about putting a wall up on the eastern border to keep out, you know, folks coming from the Caribbean. But, but, um, and, and Britain, and Britain. But, you know, I was only in this joking way, but I actually, again, I have to give it to Tricia. Like, I think there are some real potential policy prescriptions here. And I think, A, yes, like there's a real problem here. There's a real issue. And B, there are actual ways to address it. So I feel really good. I think that was a very good conversation. Great. We solved racism. <laughs> I want to move on to our second topic, which is also Jason's. This sh- t- today's show is brought to you by Jason. <laughs> so Jason, you wanted to talk about getting naked. So let's just do that. So I recently saw this movie, The Bank Job. What was striking about it is that there was a lot of nudity in it. A lot of it was like very casual. You know, it was like, there were prostitutes in a certain part and they're just kind of naked walking around. It wasn't like intense sexual scenes. It was like all of this casual nudity. And I found it really striking. And this film, by the way, came out in 2008. So 11 uh, years ago. And it was striking. It, It was like, I was really struck by it. And it just looked like, wow, they're just naked women all over the place. And then I realized like, actually, I feel like back then that was much more common. And, just to go back to Game of Thrones for a second. I mean, Game of Thrones got a lot of criticism because there were very explicit sexual scenes and a lot of nudity. And we definitely saw in the last season, there was much less nudity. And I, I assume part of that was because of the pressure. And I, I'm just, you know, we're in this moment now, kind of, you know, me too, or post me too. And I think, I do think, and maybe this is a good thing. This is what I want to hear your thoughts about. I think we've gotten more conscientious about objectifying women and gratuitous nudity. Certainly it's a better place if we're not exploiting women, but nudity itself, like is that, is nudity itself exploitative? Is it necessarily better to have less nudity? I just think about, I want to hear Chris, what you're going to say to this. Cause I, I love some of your text responses when we were texting about this, but you know, is it, is it more about equity? Let's make sure we have as many penises as we have, you know, breasts. Um, so I don't know. I'd love to hear the thoughts from you two about like, wh- what, what do we think about nudity on film? Is it, are we better off without it? Is it about how we do it? I want as many penises as breasts, which means that we'd have two naked guys for every one naked woman. <laughs> So already the math favors people like me. You know, okay. First of all, I'm a hippie and I don't have any problem with nudity, right? I think we I think we lock down ideas about nudity and we put it in this space where it's like really, really taboo. And I think that can be really problematic for children's development. But that's a whole separate ball of wax. As far as nudity on television, I don't know if it was more or less common earlier, Jason. Like I don't that's an assertion I'd never heard before in the last 25 years with the advent of HBO, Netflix, and all these other things that are not beholden to FCC regulations in the same ways. I think you can make the argument there's probably more nudity available to say nothing of the internet. I think there's more nudity available in entertainment today than in the past, or at least it's, it was cordoned off in a way that it was beyond behind a barrier, either a paywall or it was so late at night that you couldn't stay up if you were like 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. I don't have a problem with nudity in film at all. I do have a problem when nudity, sexuality, and violence are commingled. You mentioned Game of Thrones. Without watching the show, only watching the clips and some of the fever, I feel like a show like that was problematic because one... All the naked people were women, more or less. Is that correct? More or less. There's certainly a lot more nude women than men. 
the show is violent to the extreme. And some of those violent episodes involve the naked women. Like that's where I get a little like, why are we doing this? What's going on here? Why does this need to be depicted in this way? Is this key to the storytelling? But to strictly answer your question, I don't think there's a problem with nudity on film. I think it's, for me, it's when the violence comes into it. Trisha? There's an element of the question of like realism, right? That's usually why people suggest that nudity makes sense. People are naked in real life. So why shouldn't they be naked on film? And I'm like, but people aren't made up as well as they are on film. And you guys don't mind that either. So I always sort of dismiss the argument that nudity is a natural part of life. And that's why it should be on film. I don't really buy that. I think that people put nudity on film because it's salacious and it's easy. And it's a great way to titillate folks. Um, Oftentimes I find the nudity somewhat unnecessary. And actually just kind of like an easy get, like an easy way to get your attention. I've been struck by films where the nudity felt necessary right now it's it, that's weird to me because I was like let me think about when when I've experienced it that way like you're getting out of the shower feels okay that that you're naked randomly wa- getting up as a woman and being naked it's not a thing women are doing all the time it's just not sometimes I'm like why is this woman naked right here? It just <laughs> it doesn't really work for me in the scene I so I feel like sometimes it's exploitive because it's just a quick way to get someone's attention. But then I've been impressed in movies where I've watched a certain scene or maybe like a lovemaking scene. And I feel like the nudity aided the storytelling and made me feel like this was a real moment between the characters. And that, and in moments like that, I'm like, okay, I'm completely fine with the nudity. But oftentimes I just find the nudity over the top and useless. I really okay, well, let's, let's separate that out because mm-hmm. you start off saying like, oh, I don't buy that. It's a natural part, et cetera, et cetera. Then you back end it into, there are some situations where it feels to me appropriate. Like let's blow that out a little bit so we can, can you describe those two buckets? Yeah. I mean, I think there are moments where nudity is just a tease. Okay. It's a shorthand because you don't know what to write. You don't know how to suggest that this is um, a sexy moment. So you just put that person, you just make that person naked. So every movie in the early 80s. Got it. Go ahead. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just get naked, right? Yeah. It's a shorthand. And then I feel like there are movies where the nudity is meant to suggest real intimacy. Mm-hmm. Like a real connection between the characters. And then it feels to me like the nudity is in service to the story and in service to the character development and in service to what's happening in that scene. Um, that I think is rare. It really is. Um, and so those moments I'm like, I celebrate, but I don't know. I mean, like I, I, in this kind of like me too moment, I've found that a lot of directors have really exploited their actresses in particular in the past under the guise of sort of gritty storytelling and so I, I've always been a bit nervous about it because I don't know how comfortable people were really with those scenes. Well, I want to point out also, because we're, we're talking about women, that the thing that makes me very suspicious about nudity on film in the first place is that it's almost always women. Yeah. Right? And that is already a weird tell. Like, yeah. okay, well, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like if yeah. she's laying in the shower and she's like, could you hand me a towel as she's just making all of her jubblies? 
you're like, well, are the dudes showering here? And I'm not coming from a, like a, I'm not coming from a prurient place where it's like, I want to see as many dicks on screen as possible. I mean, you did say okay. that at the beginning, but okay. Oh, okay. But, but you know what I mean? Like now we're talking about it seriously. It's not just about like, I want parody because I want to be equally titillated because that's what I find attractive. It's just the fact that since there are not naked men on screen to the same degree, it immediately raises the question like, well, if the men don't need to be naked, why do the women have to be naked? Because if it's about, oh, well, she would just be naked here. Well, in your story, are the men, are they never nudes? Like it's awkward and it feels inequitable. And that's the, that's what really raises the flag for me. If we existed in a culture where like the men and the women were naked, like depicted similarly, then I feel like you could have like a, we can have like a, a, a conversation that you want to have Jason, like, Oh, is it appropriate? But I don't even feel like we can get there because of the inequity, I think it's no, quite clear that it's not appropriate because it is exploitative. Am well, I right I, there? I think that that's right. I want to throw a curveball in here, and it's going to sound like I'm taking us away, but I actually, as I think about this issue, it is relevant. Is there any reason, other than sexual jealousy and insecurity, that in real life we feel the need to always cover certain parts of our bodies in public? You are taking us away. Is that just, isn't there just like a sort of cultural modesty around certain things? Like, what do you mean? Like, should we be walking down the street naked? We we have dispensed with lots of cultural norms. Mm-hmm. This is one that really, really endures in Euro-American, um, as well as, of course, Islamic and other societies. Like Male violence. Is that what it is? Male violence. That's it. Wait, what do you mean? I mean, the only reason why women can't walk around naked is because men will attack us. I mean, we walk around barely, clo- we walk around clothed as much as possible. And people tell us it's too short, too tight, whatever. Imagine if you walked around naked. Okay, but all right. So that, but, but that's, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. But what about men? Like, why don't men, men feel comfortable walking around naked? Weirdly enough, some do. I mean, I think that's what's interesting. What's no, interesting. but that's not the point, Tricia. Like, but, but, but you know what? Men don't walk around naked for a different reason. Right. For not not for the threat of violence, for some other reason that they for whatever modesty or not modesty or whatever that is. However, let me ask you, let me think about it. Let me think about situations where men do walk around somewhat, uh, somewhat naked. I notice gay men do that in celebration. And they don't do you do do gay men not feel threatened in those spaces or what what goes out the window that allows that nakedness to be okay in those moments listen it's not because i'm gay i can't answer this question we all know the thing is is that men are really visual right yeah and that's what we're saying like you you show a man some boobies and it's like oh i can't control myself because that's what we (laughs) tell men in the culture right right um that's why men don't walk around naked right because they've assumed or told women that they're not visual and that like sexiness has nothing to do with what men look like. This is, I mean, this is just, that's always been the trope too, right? Beautiful women and schlubby men. doesn't matter what the men are looking like. So the fact that men would want to display their bodies in public, that, that is even a new thing. Like metrosexuality. Remember back in the nineties when it became like, Oh, men want to wear jeans that fit on their hips as opposed to like falling down and being eight sizes too big. Like what? Oh, K-horror. Like, what does this mean? Because for the first time, it seemed in our culture, it's like men were being subjected to the gaze of other people. Men, women, 
like that was deemed to be important suddenly. So it's like you, you talked about gay men like being naked. That's because gay men are attracted to other men and men are visual. So that makes sense for that whole so that makes sense for the community. And Trisha, you brought up other spaces where men are naked together, like and I'm thinking like locker rooms or yeah. showers. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they need to be non-sexual spaces. And, and, and those and those spaces are so aggressively non-sexual. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. And and also the other thing is that they necess- necessarily exclude women. And I think that's really important. Why? I think that's really well. I suspect a lot of it is sexual jealousy. And frankly, it's the, it's the, you know, really, I don't know. It's the concept that like penis size is such as a source of insecurity for so many men. We have a phallic obsession in this country. If you don't believe me, just do a quick, just a quick look at the history of lynching. The amount of genital mutilation that these monstrous white people visited upon black men. Yeah. There's a sexual component to it. It's astounding. It's astounding that these like supposedly red blooded American men were so obsessed with black men's penises that they would do, I mean, they would do all sorts of terrible things that would go on for hours, like sexual torture. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, around the black man's penis. I think, um, was it, um, who did a piece on this in his book? He had a chapter on this. Remember, he was like mad at President Obama. Like they were not. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cornell West. Cornell West. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing I'm going to do a super cut of me trying to like describe people. (laughs) I just throw out the most weirdly esoteric fact and you guys like, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) Who's that black guy that's mad at Obama? Yeah. Cornel West. He's the only one. Who's that girl that I always think is Selena Gomez but isn't? Oh, Demi Lovato. Oh, right. That's it, (laughs) Trisha. But anyway, Cornel West had a chapter in that in his book where he talked about that, you know, one of the problems that white men had with black men is sexuality and it's sexuality based. So, so to your point, Jason, I think that is, um, I think sexual jealousy is definitely in there. And I think it's because we revere the penis. Like the penis is the thing that allows us to control women, like physically control them in their, in their minds. But that's, that's in the culture, you know, like having sex with a woman is sort of like visiting your power upon her, which is why also like male rape is so shameful and that's also why like these endless high school and college initiation pranks where they're like penetrating men's anuses mm-hmm. in, in order to humiliate them. Like there's yeah. something that we have a phallic obsession here. If we go with classic, really sort of radical feminism, I mean, sex, the sex act is the sex act is inherently dominating, right. For, for the woman. Um, but the question, so Jason, are you saying that it is male jealousy that prevents nudity for men? I think so. I don't know if I, I buy that. that. I could see that though, because I oh. think, you know what? Because I think it's so threatening to see the male figure for another man. Because even pornos, right? When you think about pornos that are designed for women, it's about the male being naked, right? But when it's porno designed for men, it's about the woman being naked and they don't even want to see the men as much. I guess in some ways, I mean, like the male figure is so insecure that the very presence of another male in the scene or in the, on the screen is too much for them to bear. So they'd rather not see the, the nakedness. 
Well, well, by the way, another thing I find interesting, and I don't have any data on this, I do think it would be interesting. It seems to me, you know, it has become slightly more common for in mainstream films for penises to appear. I feel like every time I, you know, if there's an interview with the actor, it's always a prosthetic. Like it is never their actual penis, which or is, the penis is or the penis is um, a part of the storyline, which necessitates that it is a prosthetic. Like it's that a naturally occurring phenomenon in the film, especially American films, like you know, like um, like the Mark Wahlberg film. Like it was because he had a giant penis, so the reveal of the penis. Right. Thing, but there, right? um, what was that movie? I, I have to admit, I never saw the movie. Was it called The All Nighter? Where like I think it was Jason Schwartzman. I'm gonna have to look it up. Yeah. It was like two couples like spend the night together mm-hmm. and. I remember hearing an interview. I want to say it was Jason Schwartzman. I hope I'm not getting that wrong. But an interview with him where a woman had come up and said, I admire you guys so much because like you were just naked men, just beautiful naked men. And he's like, I didn't have the heart to tell her. We were both wearing prosthetics. And like, <laughs> Why would they be wearing prosthetics? Like it was so in, it was so weird for them to actually show their real penis. I guess. Like I I mean it there's goes- something there's something to that. I don't know if it's sexual jealousy. I'm just thinking about culture. You both know I work with children, so like this is something that comes up a lot. Culturally, boys are not supposed to be curious about other boys' bodies. Meanwhile, girls have like an entire unit on their bodies. Like girls have to talk to older women about their menstruation and their bodies and how it works. And there's like a whole, forgive me, but there's like a whole red tent culture or there can be around womanhood and, and body parts and whatnot. And we actively discourage this in young boys. So I feel like that plays into it as you get older. Even the sight of, I, I always love this in um, on slightly older TV shows. Maybe not like maybe fifteen years ago. Like even like in like a bro comedy or something. Even the sight of seeing your friend naked, they're always like, "Whoa, I don't yeah. need to see yeah, that. That's oh right. God, that's right. I don't need to see that today." As if, but if it's a naked woman then it's all fine. And even women being naked together on screen does not provoke that reaction, like True. either screen or in real life. It's something very particular that we tell men. And I think it's one, I think it's male supremacy. Two, I think it's homophobia, which I've always said is just warmed over misogyny. But I mean, but I think this is not, this is a recent history though, right? Because there was a culture of males indoctrinating indoctrinating other males and teaching other males about their bodies at some point in the history, right? I mean, the ancient Greece certainly had that. A lot of African tribes had that. It's a ritual. Yep. And we don't have that in um, this Euro-American culture. And I don't know what it is like in Asian cultures in that sense either. It's not something so that's as old as time. Okay. You know what I mean? There were other cultures for, that were more permissive in that way. Yeah. But absolutely. somehow or another, something has shifted in the culture. That's Christianity. Pro- I mean, probably. Uh, it's, yeah, and Puritanism. Yeah, it's Christianity. It's That's probably. what it is. I mean, it, well, if it's Christianity, where does it exist in Judaism? What is the male to male culture? Well, no, Judaism? actually, no. Judaism at its roots is very much anti nudity. There's that story of, um, was it Noah? I mean, where the sons see their father naked and it's this huge problem. Interesting. So, yeah. So how does that play out for us in terms of this conversation around nudity then? One thing that really struck me, I think we had a little conversation about this was the first season of insecure. You know, I just remember I was really struck that like there was a lot of, I don't want to say a lot of male nudity, but there were 
multiple episodes where you saw men's asses while they were having sex with women. And I did think, and I, I, I wasn't critical of it. I didn't, I didn't think there was anything wrong with it, but like it was, I think to me, it seemed what you were saying, Trish, at the beginning of this conversation, which it was, it seemed to me to be like, it was there as a sexual stimulant for women. It was like, look at how hard the men are pushing <laughs> into the women. And I remember I was actually, my friend Sarah, in the middle of the season, I was like, oh, like, wow, it's so much male nudity. It's a little much for me. Again, I didn't find it offensive or anything. But then I remember her saying, oh, you got to see the last episode because they make up for it with all the female nudity. And and then there was a lot of female nudity at the very end of the season. And the thing about it was, it was all the nudity, male and female, was very sexual. And I just found that interesting. It was equitable. <laughs> but very sexual and there wasn't like casual nudity of people like getting out of the shower and that kind of thing and i don't know i just can i push back on you something on something because yeah. you just said this the male nudity was too much for you what does that mean i mean after all you have seen naked women on screen time and time again has that ever been too much for you um, and, and, and right here whatever you're pondering that's the answer to the question you originally asked. There is something that you've been told about seeing men naked. Yeah. Because you just in that story, seeing what three naked men on the first season of Insecure was too much for you. I mean, do you, do women ever? I mean, this is my point. The yeah. whole nudity question is completely inequitable. And it's not just like it's not just the producers and the writers, it's something in the culture. Yeah, right. You agreed. you believe you don't want to see naked men. I mean, I, I were did you at any moment think that you were in danger of wanting to fuck Lawrence? Because that's not going to happen just because you saw him naked. Yet there's something in you. There's some subroutine that ran that through. Like, oh, this is too much for me. Yeah. No, I agree. I do think I have a you know a long ingrained like aversion to seeing male nudity. I think that mm-hmm. is absolutely right. Yeah. But you know what? You guys are well trained because you because you're so um, averse to seeing male nudity. You never get to see it. <laughs> so, well, but that's can, the point because men have right? men have like created a world where they don't have to see naked men because <laughs> that's right. As, as Jason just proved right now, it has meaning for yeah. men to yeah. see naked men, and that meaning is is somehow negative. You're you right. Know, I mean, I think this is why. I don't know. I don't want to take us off topic, but I always think it's so interesting how any conversation around sex is only, or sexuality is only available to be spoken about in LGBTQ spaces. I mean, you know what I mean? If you think about a gay show, like if queer as folk, there was so much male nudity in that mm-hmm. show. Um, it was just, it was just, it is what it was. It was, it, you know, they're gay men. So there were always naked men on the show. And I, and I was thinking to myself, well, that's the only place where men are permitted to be naked. And it be and it's like culturally accepted. Like yeah. hetero shows just don't have naked guys, but homosexual shows have naked people. Again, because they know gay men are watching and they are men. But that but also just gay story stories always in they're the only place where we talk about sexuality of any sort. Male, male, sexuality. Yeah. male sexuality and even female sexuality. You know what I mean? Sexuality, period. No, I mean, like, I- I'll be honest. Like, every like, if there's a theme, if there's a if there's a sexuality topic, it's almost always in an LGBTQ space. Do you know what I mean? Like, even 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 something that is judged to be um, 
quote unquote wrong. It's the, I, like I you only know. have, you know what I mean? I don't want to take us off that space, but I'm just saying like, I think what's interesting is that homosexual homosexuals are the only ones that are given permission to have conversations about sexuality. There's no other space where I, there's no heterosexual space where we talk about sexuality or we talk about nudity or we talk about any of those kinds of things. It just doesn't happen in other spaces. I but would if go to like a queer center. We'll talk about lots of different things about it. it's just, you know, it's just, it's really interesting that that's the only space where it's confined. Okay. I would disagree in that. I think in queer cinema and queer shows, queer entertainment, there is ample discussion about male sexuality the male sexual response, especially about men's emotional life as it's connected to their sexuality. Sure. I do feel that in heterosexual straight films, they at least attempt to talk about female sexuality, the emotional response between emotions and sexuality for women. And maybe that's an expert or maybe it's coming from a male place so it doesn't look it doesn't look like it actually should look, but I feel like that they, they attempt that all the time with women. I mean, we talked about, she's got to have it earlier. That entire show is literally about that girl's sexuality. But in a, but in a very sort of strange way. Really yeah. That's does. what I'm saying. Like it's, yeah, it doesn't feel like it's from it just, male gaze. And so yeah. like with queer cinema, it's queer people writing it. So they know of which, what they speak. Um, I I do just want to point out, like, I I agree with you because I know you, I know what you're reacting to is that when the men are sexual and heterosexual movies, it is not connected usually to their feelings or even the woman they're supposed to be having sex with her. (laughs) She is complete prop. It's an apart. And with queer films, it doesn't come across that way because it would come across so inauthentic to the, to the queer audience. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I think that queer movies totally, I'm not saying there has to be a fix, but Jason, I don't know. There's no fix to your question. I think it's just going to be a lot of soul searching. I think it's going to be a lot of coming to terms with people, with male supremacy and with homophobia. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think it's also who tells stories. I mean, I think we have had men tell stories. And males telling stories to each other and about each other are protective. They're protective of themselves in the story. They don't expose themselves. And so I think you can actually have a story about men, but it has to be told by sometimes gay men and sometimes women. And you know know what this reminds me of? There was an article in the New York Times a couple of years ago. I think I can find it. Um, it was about how they are building gyms nowadays mm. um, on the men's side in that, whereas they used to be like group showers, like now they're having showers, shower stalls with like mm. ante rooms, mm-hmm. right? With like another ante room. <laughs> and the idea is, is that like young men never want to be seen naked. Mm. And the article is about like, well, why are we catering to this? Like you are an adult you know, you should operate as an adult and you should be able to be in a space and take your clothes off and not automatically have it be sexual or feel preyed upon or whatnot, whatnot, whatnot. You know, I, I know this from experience, like just being in the gym, like young men, like I have seen young men sweaty, sweaty from the gym, get in there, take off all their clothes except for their underwear, get into the shower to shower, 
with their <laughs> underwear on. And like, you're thinking, oh no, when they get in, they're taking it off. No, when they get out, they're in soaking wet underwear. <laughs> oh my goodness. So impractical. <laughs> I've seen that more than once, you know? And I'm always like, what, what are you afraid is going to happen to you? I don't know. It's to me, it just doesn't feel is it like when I'm in the subway by myself and I look around and I'm like, it's going to turn. <laughs> do you want to explain that for the audience? Or do you want to leave it there? <laughs> okay. Audience, I might be revealing something about myself, here. but um, every time, every now and then sometimes Chris and I would be on the subway and I'd look around and I'd say, Hmm, the male to female ratio is off. This could take a turn for the worse. <laughs> So there's a so I was wondering on some level too though is do men feel threatened by each other exactly that could take a turn for the worse and this is full circle there is something we do with men's sexuality it's aggressive and it's mm-hmm. violent and so there's this idea that should you view naked men should men view you naked you're putting yourself in danger like Jason yeah. said earlier like seeing too many naked men was too much for him right because something is going to happen and it's in it's undefined and it's vague yeah but it's real we have created this mystique it's not even a mystique like we've created this like terrible fable around men's sexuality like men gotta have it and they're gonna take it and uncontrollable should should a penis get erect like it doesn't (laughs) matter it's going in you whether you want it or not And there's so many pants can't have dinner with uh, women by himself. But you know what, though? I think the ultimate, but you know what? It plays out in prison the movies, assumptions right? assumptions are insane. The assumptions are too much. But you know what? The assumption gets its full display in like prison movies, which are where the fears come, right? You're in a shower. There's only one thing that's going to happen to you there is exploitation or um, violence, right? And so that's the natural extension because now these are men who have no control. And so this is this this is the ultimate expression of that fear, so which is entirely uh, unlike female nudity at all. Which is that you go to a spa, there's lots of women naked. I think the only time you look at it, you're some, some people are more more comfortable with nakedness than not. There's maybe some modesty issues. Mm, it doesn't feel like it's out of control. It's it doesn't feel like it's going to take a interesting. <laughs> We have to wrap this up, but like, you've really got me thinking, Jason, like, I think maybe offline we can have this conversation, but I I just feel as if the messages that we are receiving about men's sexuality serves exactly no one. It doesn't serve the women. It doesn't serve the men. It doesn't serve the gays. It doesn't serve the straights. It's, it's just a miserable story that we need to end. It's a real shame. But y'all got to change that because we can't tell you that. Well, no. Do you know what I mean? It's like people have been saying all along that supremacy hurts you too. Yeah, it's toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. And when you're a 20-something-year-old person and you can't even get naked to take a shower in in your own shower stall in a gym, you've got to start asking yourself, what's happening to me? (laughs) Or or when you're so uncomfortable with your body reacting to pleasure in places they tell you you're not supposed to have pleasure. That also tells you a lot too. A lot of body shaming for men, to be honest, or just everyone in general, but I think specifically about what makes male pleasure happen and all of those kinds of things happening. (laughs) Man, this got got really, really deep from a (laughs) 
from nudity in film. It's well, it, much deeper you know psychosexuality. It goes, it goes really deep. Like it goes really deep and it has real effects on us every single day. Yeah. And I think what you brought up is just like, it was just one tentacle of it in the culture, yeah. but it comes from like this really deep, dangerous place. All right. Male sexuality, a dangerous thing. As I say, it could take a turn. <laughs> I want a t-shirt with your face on it. Just like, just head turned. I literally say I say that all the time. If it's too dark, I look around and we're like, mm-mm. <laughs> There's definitely subtext there, I guess. Or not. <laughs> not subtext anymore. No, that's like overtext. <laughs> all right. Let's move on to media recommendations, something you've seen, heard, read, or experienced. You think other people should see, hear, read, and experience. Jason, you're bursting. Yes. I am. I, I've i referred to a couple things in this episode, but what I will share, I have recommended books by Walter Mosley before, and I'm going to do it again. I just read John Woman. It was so good. It's like there were sentences that I would finish reading and be like, that was a work of art. Like that was unbelievable that he wrote that sentence. So good. You and Walter Mosley, you really like him. Do you His wanna... writing is awesome. So you just, Jason just emailed us like a summary of the book. Do you want to tell people what it's about? Yeah. You always say that to me. <laughs> yeah, I, You just drop in there like, Oh, I saw this thing. It was great. Trisha. And it's like, Nope, that's not what we're doing here. So, can you talk a little bit about why you like it. Go ahead. Um, you know, it's about a young man who, uh, his mother is Italian American. His father is African American and they have a very rocky relationship as parents. And his father, um, passes away when he's quite, when he's a teenager and his father who has almost no formal education is extremely well-read and speaks to him constantly about philosophy and history. He reads to his son as he gets older, his son reads to him. And I guess the the best thing to say it's about is it's, it's about the uncertainty of all history. And so John Woman, that character, he ends up becoming a history professor, but his whole kind of mission's not the right word. His message over and over to all the students and to his fellow faculty members is about how history is always uncertain. And then when you see that and accept that, all the implications of that for all the things we assume about ourselves or we understand about ourselves. Very, very good. Huh. Should I read it? Yes. <laughs> you know what I'd be interested in, Chris? One thing I'll say. So, you know, I've read I've read most of his books. He's written he writes like three books a year. I don't know how he does it. He writes a lot of mysteries. This was not a mystery. He writes a lot of mysteries. He's written some erotic books, really good. I don't know how to categorize this one. And I, I read a couple of reviews. No one knows how to categorize this one. But but then he's written some sci-fi books. Those are the only books by him I can't get through. I've never been a sci-fi book fan. I like sci-fi movies, but not books. But Chris, I, I feel like you would probably appreciate those in ways that I don't. But I've tried to read them. And after like page by page 30, I'm like, uh, I just can't. It's like very esoteric <laughs> and like just like weird rules to the universe. Like I just can't do it. All right, I, maybe I'll check it out. Trisha, what are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend a movie that I saw. It's called Disobedience, and it is with Rachel Weiss and Rachel McAdams and Alessandro Nivola. And it's about a woman who returns 
home after learning that her father has died. And what's noteworthy about it is that she is returning home to an Orthodox Jewish home after being estranged from her father because she had um, lesbian feelings for um, her friend. You know, you discover somewhat through the movie why she disappeared, but it's her father finds her and her friend together in some un, in some compromising position, and I think she decides that she has to leave. And so, upon his death, which happens in the first minute of the movie, she's returning home and she encounters her friend, and it's this really interesting kind of exploration of um, the love that these women have for each other, the friendship faith. Um, it was actually really well done. I, you know, me and like religious movies and sex, I'm always like, oh, this is going to be torturous. People are going to be upset. People are going to be sad. There's no good end for this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I found it surprisingly thoughtful, tender, and not very um, salacious. But I will admit, I did not know this at the time, but apparently the lesbian scene Sex scene was like, I, I guess, a huge deal. Let's just say it's a real, it's a real kicker. Um, was it, and was the, there nudity? The, see, the funny, I was about to say, they were not nude, but it is one of the sexiest sex scenes I've ever seen. Damn. No nudity in it whatsoever. And I was like, how is this possible? It, I mean, it was, there was like glimpses of, but not straight on anything. But the way the women interacted with each other in the scene was really interesting. So definitely well acted, Really surprisingly touching, not horrific to live through. <laughs> um, and so I highly recommend Disobedience. Very good movie. What you just reminded me of, one of the sexiest scenes I feel like I've ever seen is in the first Blade movie with Wesley Snipes sucking on Embaché Wright's neck. And it's like, there's no nudity. They're not even actually having sex. Such a sexy scene. Anyway. Let's talk about my media recommendation. So (laughs) Norman Lear and Jimmy Kimmel put on a live version of All in the Family and the Jeffersons that aired recently. Mm -hmm. And it was shot in front of a studio audience with an all-star cast, Woody Harrelson, Marissa Tomei, what's her name from Kimmy Schmidt, Wanda Sykes, Jamie Foxx, like Kerry Washington. It was okay. I think I'm not recommending that you watch it, right? One, it is, um, it's not a remake like we've seen. It's a love letter too. They mm. take a plot from a 70s type sitcom plot from a Norman Lear show back in the day and they just do it over with new character, with new okay. actors, right? So if you have a love for those shows, if you watch this, you're gonna be smiling the whole time. Now, I was not allowed to watch All in the Family when I was little. So the first half hour was kind of over my head. I didn't know what the references were about. Although Marissa Tomei is fucking incredible. And she's underrated. I heard that. I she heard is that. dramatically under. Why doesn't she work all the time? Um, when they moved into the Jeffersons, that was a little bit... I, I used to watch that show all the time. Anyway, what is my recommendation? My recommendation is the like 90 seconds when they have Jennifer Hudson sing the Jefferson's theme song as she like traipses through the set. I've watched that seven times. Uh, it's on YouTube. And of course we'll link to it. It is just Jennifer Hudson is 
one of the foremost voices. She's got a really powerful voice. And listening to her singing this song just really reminded me of how freaking talented she is. Um, it's a great song, too. That has got to be one of the great best song. television theme, television show theme songs ever. And to hear her sing it, you're going to love it. So that's it. Uh, skip the Jeffersons and All in the Family, unless you're just a fan of TV, then watch it. But absolutely, watch Jennifer Hudson kill this theme song. So there it is. <laughs> Sounds like fun. That's it. That was the episode. Uh, wow, we were all around the world, and I, I, I. God, it got so deep at the end there with all that naked stuff. I didn't mm-hmm. see that coming. <laughs> you know, we haven't said bye yet. You sound like you're talking like post show. I know, but I'm just, I'm just saying, we got really deep. We, we <laughs> everyone, Jason's ready to say goodbye. No. So. <laughs> Too much nudity right now. Yeah, Jason. <laughs> I know. I'm shut down. I can't talk anymore. <laughs> and on that note, everyone, bye. Bye. bye.